If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple. It's an exciting day, this, isn't it? It is exciting. It's like, isn't it? It's like a new day at school, isn't it? New, new term. New term. That's right. And outside, it's a whole new season. When we last talked, it was meant to be summer. Now we've got definitely autumn blowing in. I'm in Scotland looking outside the window. Yeah, so can I just remind you, your, your window is actually uh, the Darth Vader of podcasts because if you continue to look out your window, what it does is it means, William, I know, I know you're new to this podcast thing and we've only done 100 million episodes, but when you do look out of your window, William, or it's your ear that talks to the microphone. Yes, I mean, I've got a very beautiful view today is what I was trying to say. And uh, looking out <laughs> on the right, putting my ear to the microphone and ignoring all yeah. that's happened before. Uh, it's definitely autumn. It's gone. The summer is well, no more. Well, let's see. Hope, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed it brightens up. Look, I know you've been literally exploding <laughs> to give away the big secret. <laughs> I've been trying on several occasions to give away our secret. I mean, I literally <laughs> had to drop a wardrobe on you to stop you from doing this on a number of occasions. Yes, twice. But <laughs> shall we? Dun, 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 dun. What is the new series of Empire about? So, what we thought we'd do, and actually, this is uh, this was Anita's brilliant idea that came in the summer. As uh, the politics hotted up in that part of the world, we thought it was time to turn our attention to Russia and the Russian Empire. Well, I mean, it's 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 all that's been in the news of late. And rumor has it you've got a, you've got another job somewhere doing 
I just, <laughs> in another parish, I, I do a little, a little broadcasting on the side, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but it has, you know, the news agenda has been dominated by Russia, by what's going on in Ukraine. So it seemed to us really quite sensible to have a look and and try and make sense of why this is happening and where this all stems from. We know that you like this because uh, when we did things on the Middle East and the Sykes-Pico line and the Balfour Declaration, we had just we were inundated with people saying, "Ah, that's <laughs> what that was all about." Okay, right, we get that. So, in this series, what we're hoping to do is give you an idea of what goes on behind the mindset, perhaps, of the Kremlin today and how it reaches back into a past that is, I was going to say it's from Russia with love, but it isn't. It's Russia with love, guts, gore, blood. You know, it's if, if you were into the gouging and a stabbing and exploding of the um, Koenor series, <laughs> fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. That was a trip to Disney World in many respects <laughs> compared to what we've got for you in the next few weeks. What I think is interesting about the Russian Empire is because it's contiguous with Russia in the way that, say, the British Empire was not or the French Empire was not. It's very easy to forget for much of Russian history that it is an empire at all, but it was, in fact, one of the great empires of history. And between the 17th century and the 20th, if you count the advances made by the Russian Empire, you end up, on average, with 55 square miles per day being added to it, and that's 20 thousand square miles a year. And by the late 19th century, they ruled one-sixth of the Earth's surface and was still expanding uh, when the Russian Revolution took place. So what we're going to do is we're going to reach right back into time. Hopefully, I mean, you'll get an idea of why it is that expansionism seems to be wound around the DNA of the present incumbent of the Kremlin, because this is a history, as, you, as Williams just pointed out, of expansion and difficult expansion. So how did this this tiny place, you know, in 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 the mists of time in a small place, which seemed to be on its uppers, suddenly grow to become a global power, then cease to be a global power, then become a global power, then cease to be a global power, and arguably is one of the major threats to global security today in this day and age. And we're going to start that story with some really incredible characters. You, you will have heard, and particularly if you watch dramas on, on the streaming services, shall I say, the names um, Catherine, Peter, the Great, not so good. I mean, these, these names are not going to be unfamiliar to you, but who were they really? Who were they uh, in reality, in the history? And also, I mean, if you've been through schooling as I have, you may have flirted at some point or another with the Romanovs, the Russian family that embodies that, that first growing Russian empire. So we're going to talk about them as well and perhaps blast through some of the myths I mean, I'm just saying Anastasia, putting her out there. <laughs> we'll try and, and deal with the, the reality of some of them mythologizing about the, the, the start of this empire. And I think there's, in a sense, two halves to this story. There's the 
westwards and northwards thrust through the Ukraine to the Baltic, obviously something that has enormous resonance today with what's going on in the Ukraine. And so many of the cities which are being fought over at the moment on the front line are actually founded at the time of Catherine the Great, cities like Odessa, uh, our Potemkin foundations. But then we're also going to have a look at the the eastwards expansion and the expansion southwards, which starts really with Peter the Great and, and continues right on through the uh, 18th century, right up to the early years of the 20th century. Uh, and that's an extraordinary story too. With, you've got the medieval Muscovy uh, kingdom expanding first to the Volga, then it reaches the Caspian by 1556, the capture of Astrakhan, then it expands beyond the Urals and starts taking over the Muslim Khanates to its south, Sibir, uh, and so on. And just when the other empires are beginning to sort of slow down their conquests, by the time the British have already conquered all of India, you suddenly get this extraordinary second thrust south of the what they call the Orenburg Line. And by the early 20th century, the Russians have moved 1,800 miles further south, adding 1.5 million square miles and 6 million new subjects to their empire. The Oxus is, the, is now the boundary, including all the basins of Central Asia's other great rivers. And they're beginning to take over these famous Central Asian carnates, Tashkent, Bukhara, Samarkand, uh, all these fantastic names. Yeah, Isvinite Bajalsa. I, I have a question. <laughs> I'm, I've no problem with your Samarkand and your Tashkent, but you did one of those. Um, how, how can I put it? But sort of the posh boy pronunciation that I, I don't. I never. And are you right? Is it the Urals or is it the Urals? I say Urals. You said Urals. What well, pronunciation <laughs> is it? Like is it Ur Romanov, as you said, or is it Romanov? Just, <laughs> just, <laughs> I think it's Romanov. I mean, I'm tempted to call the whole thing off. Um, yes, okay. Well, we'll we'll agree the pronunciations of, of these things. But you you get the idea. You're you're the BBC girl, Anita. You're the BBC girl. You get you get to have the pronunciation. In another life, that is correct. But look, we, we're going to we're going to walk you through that, or gallop you through, <laughs> gallop you through on a galloping horde of horses through that early history. But the thing that you know, I'm I'm very excited that we're also going to be talking about is the history of the great game. So we'll talk about the formation, the foundation, the idea, the notion of a Russian empire, and then how it starts to meddle in world affairs. And there is no better example, or no more, no more dramatic example of this than the great game, which is a real, I mean, that's a, a huge part of your life, isn't it, William? I mean, the great game referred, just to, just to explain it, uh, if, if, the, if the term is not familiar, to this rivalry between the Imperial Russian Empire heading south at this extraordinary rate of uh, however many hundreds of miles a year, and the British heading north and westwards up from Bengal, and meeting in places like the Pamirs, the Himalayas, in the Afghan foothills, and so on. But it is a very problematic term. It's a, it's a term which dates from sort of Kipling-era Raj, and it gives the impression of a sort of jolly boy's own adventure in the Himalayas, whereby uh, a bunch of posh Russian officers are, uh, are facing off against a bunch of posh English officers. And it's all a terrific wheeze. Uh, of course, if you are 
a member of the uh, one of the Khanates in uh, in Tashkent or Samarkand or Bukhara, and um, the British are coming from one side and the Russians are coming from the other, and both have got Gatling guns. Then this idea is very far from a game, and Kipling saw this as a as a sort of an area of sort of boy's own daring do, where Brits in disguise would go up into the Himalayas and often send ahead of them uh, people called the pundits, who were highly trained Indians uh, in disguise with, for example, sort of measuring tape in their prayer wheels or measuring staffs disguised as pilgrim staves, and that these guys would be making maps, working out the depths of rivers. One of the classic Great game stories, which I'm going to really enjoy telling, is one that uh, features very strongly in my book, Return of a King. And that's the moment that the British want to map the Indus. Uh, and the Such problem a here. Story. It's a Such a good story. story. It's a great story. Problem here. Mm. Uh, this is like you know the very beginning of the great game is that uh, there are you know warring tribes on either side and Ranjit Singh, the Sikh ruler who controls Lahore very sensibly, is not going to allow any British people measuring the Indus and certainly not sending you know cartographic teams to uh, work out what are the best passes to invade Central Asia with or, or the best ways to go up the river. So they come to a, a sort of you know 19th century equivalent of a sort of James Bond's M comes up with a, a 19th century wheeze to get the measuring men and the cartographers up the Indus. They hear that Ranjit Singh's great passion in life is horses. He has a, a, an enormous stable full of the, the fastest, the swiftest, the tallest horses uh, in all of India. And they have the idea that in order to get a boat up the Indus and in the boat, a series of cartographers from the Royal Geographical Society measuring flow and depth and uh, uh, busy taking readings on the banks, that what they're going to do is that they're going to send a party of English dray horses, enormous cart horses, who are these towering beasts, seven foot uh, tall on a raft up the Indus. And he will give permission to this because he wants the horses to reach him in mint condition. On top of this, they're going to send a coach, uh, which is an, a decommissioned coach that had previously belonged to the, the Lord Mayor of London. And inside the coach, they're going to put the geographers with their theodolites and so on. And hidden under the coach will be other people measuring the depth uh, of this. And so this is a Trojan horse situation. It's an incredibly improbable story, but it actually you know happens. What? Actually, that, it, it reminds me of another. I mean, we're, we're diverting as we do on this. And, and I'm going to come back to the, the, the roadmap. As, as our producer, one of our producers put it, give him the sizzle, not the sausage today, Anita, which I think is one of the most vile sayings I've ever come across, but I promised I would use it just because you all should know how people talk. But the, uh, when it comes to horses and Ranjit Singh, uh, uh, just another story that comes to mind is something I wrote about, which is the British were trying to woo him at one point and sent very fine thoroughbreds across the water as a gift, but the ship sank and they all drowned. So we'll, we'll maybe talk about that as, as well in a bit. But just as, a, as a, an outline of, of this series, we're going to take you back to the very beginnings of the great game. We're going to talk about people like Napoleon and Alexander II. This stretches all the way back to them and their plans 
to conquer India. As I said, you know, Peter the Great is going to figure, Catherine the Great, all the greats. We'll have all the greats on this podcast series. And also, you know, Afghanistan will figure in this. So much of what uh, Afghanistan is today, we will go back into the history of that place and how a great deal of international meddling has made it the place that it is today. We'll talk about the East India Company missions that, you know, William has just been touching on, those early attempts uh, to set a foothold in what is an enormously strategic part of the world. You've got these extraordinary characters like the mysterious Captain Vikovich, who's one of my favorite characters, who is the Russian spymaster, but except it turns out he's not Russian at all. He, in fact, is a Lithuanian who stood against the Russians. He's sent it to a punishment posting south of the Urals, and it's only his skill in Central Asian languages that allows him to be recruited as a kind of spy for his enemies, the Russians. And there's a great rivalry with Alexander Burns, who's the British man. And this is very much the kind of prime Great Graham territory. The two meet in Kabul for Christmas lunch. Yeah. And, and you know, we'll, we'll have uprisings, sieges, defeats, the retreat from Kabul. I mean, this is a, a, a history book which is soaked through with blood. And we're also going to touch on the on the Crimea, which is such an enormous part of, of British history. It's probably the stuff that you were taught at school. And it's just completely relevant to what is going on in modern politics today. And we will have, again, your home territory, the Second Afghan War, which is just such an important part of the formation of Asia. And that's important from a different point of view, because that's where the Durand line, which is the line separating now Afghanistan and Pakistan is formed. And that, of course, is the line which the Taliban are infiltrating, where all these uh, people are crossing back and forwards, uh, inspiring militancy in Pakistan, which is currently uh, suffering a resurgence of, of bombs by people like Islamic State and so on. It's all, it's all again, very much uh, contemporary history and, and the roots of that. And then we come across what, to me, is one of the most interesting stories of all, the sudden moment when Russia is defeated by Japan. You can trace in many ways the beginning of the resurgence of Asia back to this first original Japanese defeat of Russia. So that to me is really, really interesting. So, I mean, that's a, that's a sneak peek at what we are going to be doing over the next few weeks. Join us after the break when we tell you a little bit about um, how our own personal stories weave in with this part of the world. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome back to Empire, and we are laying out our float for our new series, which we will be uh, entertaining you with over the next. Uh, two do you months. know? I just think laying out, laying out was a was a very lovely, uh, rarefied way of saying we're just throwing everything at the wall. Here. <laughs> we, just, we want you to know how excited we are and how much there is to talk about. So yes, forgive us for just um, basically hurling everything that um, is in our heads at the moment. But but our heads are really in this game um, for a number of sort of personal reasons, aren't they, William? Yeah, I, I mean, Anita, this w- series was very much something you've been pushing for. I remember that day when uh, Brzezogin suddenly surprised us all by turning his tanks uh, from the Ukraine back into Russia. Uh, that mm. was the day that you said, we have got to do Russia next. Well, it, fe- it felt so familiar. It felt exactly, you know, they, they have this saying that all Russian leaders are paranoid, except there really are people out to get them. You know? <laughs> so uh, it, it felt a little bit like these sort of waves, these eddies of, of Russian history happening again. I mean, as it turned out, Prigozhin did a very peculiar thing and, and didn't, you know, turned back and now is at large. And Even more peculiarly, still alive. Still alive, uh, I know, which is I unusual for somebody. At that point. Well, <laughs> unusual for somebody who challenges, you know, the, the power uh, in, on the throne, uh, which is Putin at the moment. But the reason you're right, the reason I really wanted to do this is because Russia Russia has constantly fascinated me um, since my childhood. I grew up in the 80s, and in the 80s, there was this constant fear that we were all going to go up in a mushroom cloud because of nuclear war. I mean, there were little booklets that some of you may remember called Protect and Survive. And it- I remember all that. And it is a generational difference, I think. My kids were not brought up on this, and they didn't, so they didn't have, have those this. films, and they have no idea about the idea. I remember we used to sit there looking at those, those sort of charts of ICBMs, and whether Russia yes. had had long this long a line and uh, America that long How a line. How far will they get this time? And then the tanks. And I remember yeah. that the, the cover of, of Protect and Survive, this sort of beige covered thing with sort of two neutral looking figures and a circle around it. And I remember just having that and just being utterly terrified to the point where I had to put it under a stack of books so it couldn't even whisper to me in the night. You know, it was it was that scary. And it was in, in all culture. So if you are sort of a similar age to me, you'll know, I mean, still was singing on about it. Do the Russians love their, their children. children too? But even before that, do you remember? Did your school ever have those those government videos of nuclear bombs going off and the no, the, the, the that was just so before my time? I got that. I I, I in 
I suppose about 13 got these government videos that we were shown at school with a mushroom cloud rising, then the blast area, then the uh, the area that was affected by nuclear fallout after that. And yeah. you'd see these sort of eccentric circles, like, you know, when you throw a stone in a, in a pond and the, the ripples, uh, and the ripples go out. And you, yeah. then you'd see these concentric circles meeting each other and, 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 and colliding. And there was nowhere to, there was nowhere to escape from. Uh, that was very much part of my childhood. It, 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 and there are some of us who are really very much stamped by this. I remember talking to Fiona Hill, who was the Russia expert at the White House. Oh, I'm very envious you've met her. She's oh, amazing. She's, ah. she's a friend. She's a friend. But, you know, she um, she said exactly this, that when she grew up in the north of England, she was utterly terrified that at any given moment they may go up in a mushroom cloud, which is what prompted her to study Russian. And we got very excited about this because it's exactly what was going on with me when at school I really wanted to study Russian as well because you want to understand the thing that terrifies you. So I was very lucky. I did study Russian at school. I was It was offered. And in 1989, which happens to be like a real milestone in Russian history, I got to go to Russia on a school trip. That year, the year that it all yes. happened. Yes, yes. I mean, we just, you know, we we went in the autumn and it was, you'll remember, you know, Gorbachev was was in the Kremlin, but he was being challenged. And the Russia that we saw at that time was still Soviet, even though, you know, Gorbachev was talking about perestroika and glasnost opening up his country, more transparency, greater economic interface with the rest of the world. There were still these these places called gum stores at the time. I don't know whether you've ever been to Russia or you went to Russia during this time, but people who, Soviet people were not allowed to go and shop in these, these places. They were only for Westerners. And in these shops, you could get things like deodorant and, you know, fancy sort of beaded bangles and, and, and watches and, and chocolate and booze that, you know, was not available to Russian people. Those survived much later in China. And I remember going around China where you not only had shops that only Westerners could use, but you had your own currency, uh, yeah. which, uh, which uh, Chinese people were not allowed to use at all. Well, I mean, that, that was also, I mean, really seared into my memory. You couldn't, you weren't allowed, if you were Soviet, you weren't allowed to have Western currency at that time. So, you know, even though we were school kids and we were with, oh, poor, poor teacher, Mr. Gleason, if you're listening, we're so sorry we behaved this way. <laughs> but, you know, he, he would try and corral us and look after us. But we were always sort of like being sort of hived off by Russians saying, you know, have you got a hard currency? If you've got uh, dollars, we'll do a ruble exchange, which was, you know, far in excess of what the official figure was. It was a thriving black market at that time. And, you know, 1989 was also important because Gorbachev had presided over a Warsaw Pact summit that guaranteed, and this is really important for modern history, equality, independence, and the right of each country in the Soviet Union to arrive at its own political position, I'm quoting from him now, strategy and tactics without interference from an outside party. Because he thought that if he did this, if he let them choose, then as he put it, his socialist brethren in Eastern Europe would still stay true. Now, these are some of the reasons that Putin hates Gorbachev. I mean, he sees this as the, the moment. I mean, that time when I was in Russia was the moment when Russia was being the most humiliated in its history. So, you know, when, when I was a student journalist, I was just starting out as a student journalist, William. It's, it was so crazy. It was, um, and I just couldn't resist this. There was a G7 summit 
in the UK in July of 1991. Do you remember that? Gorbachev and Raisa were coming. I do, absolutely and I do remember, it, yeah. It was going to be at Lancaster House. It was like really, I mean, it was, it was all anybody was talking about wall-to-wall saturation. And I just had no business to be there at all. But I had to be there because I wanted to be a journalist. And I was on a student newspaper. How old and were I you? Thought, you know, oh, gosh, 18, 19, something like that. And I thought, you know what I need? What I need is to cover this for the London student newspaper. <laughs> it needs to know. Forget that the world's media is here. It was a different world then because um, to get security clearance to cover the G7, you needed to present a press pass and a letter of accreditation. So I had my mate in the office write a letter of accreditation saying, yeah, she works at the London student newspaper. And I made a press pass myself at home with my little brother and Pritt stick and a photograph and they accepted it. So suddenly I was swept along on this wave of the world's media. I mean, I was sort of with the Western press packs. It was TV and it was all the newspapers. It was like proper people who were covering this. And first of all, they just had, they thought it was hilarious that I was there. They thought it was absolutely the funniest thing that they'd ever seen, that this ridiculous student... But a hell of a coup to have got in. I mean, amazing. Well, yeah. I, and I've, got, I've still got my G7 pass. <laughs> it's just such a, an, an extraordinary, one of my most precious things. But I turned into the class mascot, the class clown as well, but the class mascot. Like, what, what on earth is the London student going to care about this G7 summit? But I wanted to write about important political matters. Um, so what actually ended up happening was that they, because I spoke a bit of Russian, <laughs> and they suddenly the photographers clocked this, because they were always trying to take pictures, particularly of Gorbachev's wife, right? And they clocked the fact that I could yell and scream in Russian to attract their attention. So I had really aching armpits at the end of this week because they would just hoik me up saying scream and I'd go, Izvinite, Pajasta, Raisa, Raisa. And, and they would get their photograph. So I had literally the time of my life, but I got it into my head that I would, um, the coup for the London student, which was their newspaper, <laughs> newspaper of notes at the time, was that we needed an interview with Gorbachev. And I just have no idea the arrogance of the young idiot that I was. So I found out from a friend of mine at the Press Association at the time, who'd become a friend because I was his, I was his uh, chief screamer at the, at, you know, at the, at the visiting parties. He gave me the route that they were taking for the next two days. And I printed out 18 copies of a letter of request addressed to Mikhail Sergeyevich, because like he's my mate, Gorbachev, uh, asking for an interview. And I dropped them at every single place that he would be on the route with doormen, with security, with all of these people thinking I was going to to get this interview. And it was only months later. And honestly, this used to be my father's favorite story about his ridiculous daughter. He said he got a phone call from the Russian embassy saying, <laughs> can I speak to Anita Arnand? Uh, or said, you know, with a very thick Russian accent. My can I speak to Anita Arnand? Yeah. Yeah. And my dad said, what have you done now? <laughs> what have you done? So I, I took the phone call and it was somebody from the embassy who said, um, I have in my hand five letters to Mikhail Gorbachev from you. How many more can I expect? I said, well, I did 18. And he said, we are considering, we are considering your request. And then of course there was the coup and he went. So, you know, I got, I got, Close. So that's that's my Russian story. Your first moment of journalism. It's fantastic. Well, it, yeah. I, I mean, I, I really was. I was body and soul committed to telling this story because it was the story that had formulated my, my childhood. Anyway, let's, let's, enough about me. 
Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? No, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your fascination. Come on. So I've always come to this subject through the prism of India, Afghanistan, and Central Asia. And that's always been my interest. I've spent, as you know, my entire adult life sitting in Delhi. And I've become more and more interested in in that whole uh, history of the of the Russian conquest of Central Asia and how far they did or didn't actually threaten Afghanistan and the and the Punjab. And as a young journalist, I used to get very irritated. In fact, because at the same time that you were sitting in Moscow watching uh, Yeltsin's coup and all this sort of stuff, I was a young journalist in India trying to get stories into the paper in 1989. Of course, all anyone wanted was Adam McElvoy reporting from Berlin and from the wall going down and, and all that sort of stuff. So, I was, to be fair, that was a pretty good story. <laughs> it was a pretty, it was a pretty good, good story. story. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember um, meeting Christina Lamb and comparing this because she also was she was in Pakistan and was making her. Her name as a as a young journalist, one or two years into her career, and neither of us were getting any stories into the uh, into the paper because everything was that year, nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety, was what was happening uh, with the breakup of the Soviet Union. And for me, it was only really after the fall of the Taliban for the first time in the early two thousands that I started travelling uh, properly to Afghanistan rather than just the borderlands, just Peshawar and so on. And I began researching the story of the first Afghan war. And as is always the story with the so-called great game, it's always the story that's done either from British sources, in most cases in, uh, in the histories in this, in this country, so people like the wonderful Peter Hopkirk, whose books I loved as a, uh, as a student, reading The Great Game was the thing that really started me off on this, and, and his foreign devils on the Silk Roads and setting the Easter blaze and all these kind of books. Uh, but they're all from British sources. Uh, and those that aren't from British sources are from Russian sources. And no one was ever using the sources of the Afghans or the Central Asians, which are voluminous, but they're in Persian mm. and they're difficult to find and you have to go and find them. And so a lot of, I think, the history writing that's taken place in the last 20, 30 years to try and rewrite this history has been to give agency to the Afghans and the Central Asians and find out what their views were, what they thought of this. And they didn't think this was a game in any sense or, or manner. And I had this sort of fantastic start on my literally my first and second day in Afghanistan. And I arrived and a cousin who was the economist correspondent at the time had given me the name of the Chancellor of Kabul University. And his name was Ashraf Ghani. Uh, the guy who would later oh. become the, uh, no the president and, uh, and whose flight from Kabul two years ago uh, brought down this whole enterprise and, and, and readmitted mm. the Taliban. Anyway, Ashraf was then the vice chancellor of Kabul University and a considerable historian. He wasn't much of a president, but he was a remarkable historian of Afghanistan. And the very first day I went there and said, you know, are there any Afghan sources for the first Afghan war? Because we all know what the Brits think. There are, you know, miles and miles of materials in the uh, India Office Library and in the British Library and in the National Archives in Delhi of, of the British view of things. But what about the Afghans? And he said, there are hundreds of sources. We have poems, we have chronicles, we have autobiographies, we have memoirs from all walks of life from different tribes, all of which give, give slightly different and, and slightly nuanced points of view. And he got them down from his library. They were there sitting in his office in, in the middle of Kabul. Wow, you must have been like a kid in a sweet oh, it shop. Was, wow. it, it was like, you know, I'm, it's, I'm literally my most sort of 
productive day as a historian ever, I think. And then yeah. he said, not only that, but a lot of these you could actually buy because there's this one shop in a place called Jowi Shear down by the river in the, in the old city of Kabul, uh, where when all the families were leaving, the, the grand old Afghan families were leaving in the 70s and early 80s, they would sell their libraries in order to buy their air tickets or their passages through to Pakistan or whichever way they were planning to leave Afghanistan. They would sell their books to this old bookseller, and he's got complete sets of everything. And so I literally I got a taxi from Ashraf Ghani's office to this bookshop oh. in Jawi Shia. And by the time I got back to Rory Stewart's old fort where I was staying, Rory at that point was not a uh, the country's top podcaster, but uh, instead was uh, was restoring Kabul. Plain old governor of a, a province. Plain, <laughs> no, he'd been that. <laughs> he was in retirement from being a governor of a province. Okay. Uh, coming for a year or two, a conservator at, at uh, Turquoise Mountain, which he set up. But anyway, mm. by the time I got back there at lunch, I had in my hands eight original printed Afghan sources. Did you not get shot at? Were you shot at while you were gathering? I was materials? shot at. Not that day, I got to say. This was, this was a good day. Later, I then went and heard that there were more places like this in Kandahar where you could hmm. pick up, a, pick up these, these incredible poems and epics and so on. And I flew into Kabul and luckily they'd set me up with a bulletproof car, which you needed to go to Kandahar in those days. Because when we arrived at the place, there was a sniper bullet in the back window where I had been sitting, but it, because it was an, an, an armoured glass made to resist Blimey. this sort of thing, I, I'm alive telling the story now. As you can imagine, it figured on the publicity of King yes. and that photograph <laughs> was much reproduced. Historian dodges death to bring you this story. So you might... You might be able to tell. I mean, we, <laughs> as much as we dislike talking about ourselves, we've now done it for the majority of this program. Um, but look, this is such a rich theme of history for us, and you can tell how much we are champing at the bit to, to bring it to you. So do join us next week because we have some very special episodes coming up on the horizon. And a very special guest, but I'm probably not allowed to say who he is. No, because if you do, <laughs> the sniper didn't get you, Dalrymple, <laughs> but I will cross the Yuval Mountains <laughs> and I will finish you off myself. Luckily, um, luckily you only so, have to drive up the, the, the A1. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't tempt me. Okay, look, I mean, look, there'll be Ivan the Terrible, there'll be Peter the Great. None of these people have simple names, but look, it is the Russian Empire. Empire. So do join us next week. Blood and guts and more next week on Empire. Until then, it is goodbye from Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Durimple. <laughs>